0: I love playing for silent films because I can just sort of disappear up here. And that's what that's my intention to disappear because I'm just taking the emotions that are on screen and kind of lobbing them out into the audience with a little help.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Streaming is all anybody's talking about these days, so we're going to look at all the other ways people can still watch movies. We go on location to my neighborhood Picture Palace, Chicago's Music Box Theater, as house organist Dennis Scott tells us about its new old organ and the theater's 90-year history. And Bruce Calvert and I look at the year in physical media, naming our 10 best vintage film releases on Blu-ray and DVD. Help keep new old media alive. Leave us a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times for collecting movies on physical media. The worst of times because streaming services were taking over the market. The best of times because the market was flooded with last chance releases of vintage films in editions that never looked better, making it a great time to stock your library while you can. That's what we're going to talk about today at Nitrateville Radio this moment for collectors. And we're going to do something that we haven't done before, but a lot of podcasts about movies or music or whatever do this time of year. We're going to pick a top 10 of vintage movie releases from 2019. And I say we because I have a guest to help me with that, and that's Bruce Calvert, my fellow moderator at Nitrateville. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. You collect Blu-ray releases to some extent, but you collect a lot of other things too. Tell me about that.
2: Well, yeah, I I really love the silent film era. So I have a lot of stills from the silent film era and the 1930s, and I love movie heralds, which are little advertising things that theaters handed out advertising their next film coming up, and postcards and just a lot of that. And I put it together in a website called the silentfilmstillarchive.com where you can go and look at a lot of vintage archival items that show you exactly how things were presented to audiences back in the silent era in the 1930s.
1: Well, let's talk about, uh, in Plano, Texas, not a place that uh, revivals tend to come, but you actually do something
2: about that yourself. Yes, we get together once a month. We have a group called the Dallas Classic Film Group, where we get together and watch 16 millimeter films. And we always believe in watching cartoons, newsreels, slapstick comedies. And the like, too. And we've been doing that for 20 years. Wow. Well, let's talk
1: about, uh, you know, this this moment. You know, str- everybody's talking about streaming. We seem to get a new major uh, streaming service pretty much every couple of weeks right now. To some extent, vintage movies are getting the short shrift. At least you have to kind of know where to poke around for them and a lot of people if they don't already have the love for them they're not going to bother with
2: that but there's there's still a lot of different ways you can get your films and i I prefer uh, having a physical copy on disc and the reason is is because you can pop it in at any time it's easy to pause i know you can pause streaming too it's easy to play in your television most places like netflix don't have a very good selection of classic film. And Amazon Prime does, but a lot of it's a lot of PD stuff that people have uploaded, like on YouTube. And occasionally there is stuff on YouTube that's definitely worth watching. But a lot of a lot of it's just really lousy quality.
1: But at the same time we still have the the labels that have been serving this market over the last few years. Everybody from Criterion to Warner Archive to Kino and Milestone and Flickr Alley. Uh, We even see some some new labels getting into the market here. So it's an interesting time. Physical media seems to be going away, and yet uh, there's more of it available right now for you to spend your money
2: on if if you uh, if you just look around, well, some, the best thing about physical media is all of those companies you mentioned really lovingly restore their films, and they try to. I mean, they do have limited budgets, but they try for the best audio and the best picture quality that they can on their budget. And a lot of times, they provide context with the films, whether it be an accompanying short that um, has to do with the film. Or they'll have trailers, they'll have documentaries on the films, and things like that really enhance at least my enjoyment of the film. And especially if it's something that you've heard of that's, that you don't really know much about, and having all that extra context is really helpful.
1: So, yeah, I mean, for something that's going away, we're kind of in a golden age of film releases that represent real film scholarship. Why, why is it going away? This seems so great. Why would it go away?
2: Well, streaming is convenient. It's much cheaper. You don't have to have a big bookcase full of all of your discs if you really love movies. But I think most cinephiles would say, I want that bookcase full of discs so I can show off to my friends and say, look at all this stuff I have in my collection. But for people who are younger that haven't grown up having to have VHS tapes on their shelf and then DVDs and now Blu-rays or Laserdiscs, I used to have Tons of laser discs back oh, in the me 90s. Me too, me too. <laughs> then I gave them away after I got married. But the streaming has its place. Even I stream movies occasionally, especially if I know I'm taking a trip. I'll download, I'll usually buy something from the Warner Archive on my phone and stream it on the plane because I'd rather watch that than some infomercial on the plane. But I don't know. Just having the discs is just really great. To think, oh, I haven't watched Bridge Over the River of Kauai in five years, and we were talking about that the other day. Maybe I should pop it in the player and watch it again.
1: Right, and then you find out that it's the first of the month, and it went off the streaming channel on the the thirtieth, yeah. so <laughs> no more Bridge on the River Kauai. The advantage for things that you really want to see multiple times is obvious enough, and to me, I don't I don't see it as an either or. Uh, Streaming is one way to watch things, just as it being
2: on The Late Late Show on TV 40 years ago was one way to watch things. And I think we should remember that both physical media and streaming should never replace your chance to go see a live show. I'm thrilled that we don't get many classic films here in the Dallas area, but Ben Modell is coming next weekend to do a show, The Racket, at the Texas Theater in Dallas. So I'm thrilled that he's coming, and of course I'll be there. Especially for silent films, anytime you can catch Ben Modell or Jeff Rapsis or any of those guys, Donald Sozin, Phil Carley, they can, uh, Mike, or, uh, John Marsalis, they all do an incredible job. And in the Alloy Orchestra, too, I saw them uh, do Metropolis uh, in February, and I'd seen Metropolis at least seven or eight times, but their score blew me away. that's another topic. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So there's more ways to see things than ever, Uh, but we're going to focus on physical media and do, as I said, our first ever top 10. We're each going to take five here. I get the even numbers. My number 10, one of the greatest adventure films of all time, but also one of the great movie scores of all time, Eric Wolfgang Korngold's score for The Seahawk. Uh, Warner Archive put this out. It was edited for a 1950s reissue with another Michael Curtiz seafaring film, although one very different in tone, The Sea Wolf. Warner has been looking for complete material on both of those titles. You probably had the same laser disc that I had that had uh, some restored material, but it was definitely fuzzier than the stuff around it. And this edition finally gets it in almost pristine. I mean, someone really trying can see a little difference, but not much. Uh, A pristine, full-length version, one of the greatest swashbucklers of all time, just full of adventure and romance and lots of that whole warner brothers uh you know stock company of people like henry danielle and alan hale senior and uh, you know Mm -hmm. all those other faces you'd love to see in these things so i mean just just a wonderful fun film irresistible old-fashioned entertainment in a beautiful edition from warner archive that's my first choice
2: all right and number nine bruce Okay, well, Mike, you have a second gig as a food critic, so, <laughs> so you'll appreciate the star of my first pick, is this guy is incredibly famous, and he eats healthy food.
0: But we says we hate spinach. Hate spinach? You has to eat it to get
2: health, strength, and vitality. It's Popeye the Sailor, <laughs> and Warner Archive has released three great collections of his cartoons from the 1940s on Blu-ray, with Volume 2 and Volume 3 being released in 2019. I'm just going to talk about volume number two, which has 15 great cartoons from 1945 to 1947. All of these cartoons have great jaw-dropping color. They have spectacular animation, and they're a lot of fun. Now, did you grow up watching Popeye on TV?
1: No, I kind of caught him later when I was a film buff. Just wasn't on our local stations.
2: Well, he was on our stations, but those were the, the ones that were made for television in the 1960s, and they had limited animation. The ones on this disc are from Paramount Famous Studios, so after Paramount had bought Popeye from, or bought the Fleischer Studio and fired the Fleischers. And they still feature the original Paramount logos, even though the discs are from Warner Brothers. They're all full animation, not limited animation, like you see on a lot of stuff from the 60s. And interestingly, all feature Popeye, olive oil, and bluto, but Wimpy and Sweet Pea just aren't in any of them, which I thought was strange. They all have the same basic situation of the same love triangle, but the cartoons take place at a fair, a gas station, on Mars, on the ocean, in Arabia, and in the Old West. So the, the stories, while the same plot's the same, they're all in a different setting. And what I thought was really interesting is sometimes Popeye and Bluto are friends at the beginning of these cartoons, but all bets are off as soon as they meet Olive Oil. <laughs> in, in this era of hashtag me too, I'm sure that somebody has written a master's thesis about gender roles in the Popeye's <laughs> cartoons. <laughs> you would have thought that Olive Oil would have figured out that Bluto only has one thing on his mind, and by that I mean kisses, but she seems to fall for him every time. Popeye does mistakenly kiss Bluto a couple of times, so maybe <laughs> these cartoons are ahead of their time. I don't know. But anyway, if you're a true cinephile, you shouldn't just stick to feature films. You should try some st- collections of shorts, and these cartoons would be a great addition to your collection.
1: Well, that's a good lead-in to my next one, number eight. Serge Bromberg had some things to say about this at Nitriville Radio uh, some months back. Melias is focused mostly on on uh, uh, academics, historians, people who were interested in the beginnings of cinema. But at the beginning of cinema, people didn't know it was the beginning of cinema. People (laughs) believed that it was just, you know, something happening. Let's say cinema at the present. So why not show the Melias films as if they were films of today? Like Bruce said... It's not just about feature films. There there are other kind of formats that work theatrically for many years, although not so much today. The disc that I chose for number 8 really demonstrates a totally different way of going to the movies and appreciating what you're seeing there, and that's short fantasy films. Uh, the famous films of Georges Méliès, made in the first decade or so of the 20th century. The disc is called Méliès' Fairy Tales in Color. It's about a dozen different uh, Méliès shorts. And what's wonderful about this, it's not necessarily the famous ones that you've seen multiple times, but they're all ones that exist in really high-quality prints Mostly with a, with original tint, I guess all of them with original tinting of one kind or another. You really see, you know, maybe for the first time how detailed the painted sets of these Melies films and the and the quirky uh, sort of cartoonish uh, special effects in which you know wooden hinged fish go swimming by you. One of the things that's most interesting about them is that they come with a couple of different ways that you can watch them. You can watch them with titles or with someone reading the narration or just the music. And you can read the narration uh, as as if it's a story that you're telling to your child. So I think that's one of the things that's so interesting is they're really coming from a different conception of what cinema was for. It was picture books come to life, yes. fairy tales come to life. And that's
2: just really charming. Okay, well, my next selection, one of the big stories in the classic film community in the last two or three years has been the use of crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter and GoFundMe for film distributors and even smart amateurs to release classic films, usually silent films on discs, but not always. These projects allow the producer to cover their costs by selling quite a few copies of the product even before it's done. Nitrate villain Ed LaRusso has released a bunch of these, mostly featuring Marion Davies. And Ben Modell has released many collections with the help of Steve Massa, usually of comedies. Ben's Undercrank production still sells all of his Kickstarter projects, plus some of the ads and even collections of films that have been shown at the Mostly Lost Festival every year. So my pick for the best crowdfunded disc of the year is the two-disc Alice Howell Collection. Howell was mostly forgotten until Steve Massa devoted a big chunk of his book, Slapstick Divas, to her. And now we have about eleven and a half of her short comedy films available to make us laugh again. Not all of them are laugh riots, but Alice is a really funny character in all of them. She was best known for having her long hair piled up on top of her head. She could keep up and do physical comedy with the best comedians of the period. Now, there's, I'm not going to go through every one of these, but one of the interesting films on the discs is only half there. It's called How, How Stars Are Made from 1916. Alice plays an aspiring actress who tries to get a job at the LKL studios, but they only offer a job as the janitor. She mistakes comedian Raymond Griffith for a movie star, but he's a janitor also. They, this one is interesting because they have some scenes of silent films being shot on the set, and they're all side-by-side, side, so they're f- filming several films at one time, and both Howell and Griffith end up hijacking the studio's float in a parade. She dresses up as an angel, and he's the devil on the float, and it has a giant banner on the side that says, To Hell with the Devil, which is surprising for a film from 1916, I think. Yeah. <laughs> if you really like slapstick comedy or silent comedies, or you're interested on in f- feminine comedians or feminine artists, this disc really needs to be in your collection.
1: Yeah, people are people are making these homebrew
2: video releases. You know,
1: anyone anyone can do it now. It's it's that's a pretty cool thing.
2: And and another cool thing is if if you're in on the initial the initial uh, pledge time, you get your name in the credits. There you go. So, there's something about that if we just said well, we're going to release a new Marion Davies film, uh, next month. And you might think, oh, I've, I can buy that in the next couple of years. But if you think, well, we've only got a, a month to contribute to it and I can get my name in the credits and then I'll have it. It'll just come sometime and I can watch it. There's something about that that works. My number six,
1: uh, one of the first things that I posted in Nitreville, you know, 12 or 13 years ago was a list of uh, European films that were MIA. Uh, they were once famous films that were not in distribution from any video label. And over time, some of those 10 films have been released, mostly by Criterion, but we're still catching up on all of them. And one that came out this year is The Baker's Wife, La Femme de Boulanger, uh, by Marcel Pagnol. Pagnol, who's best known for the Marseille trilogy of Marius, Fanny, and César, uh, which is also out from Criterion, you know made these films of of kind of French rural life uh, sort of slyly funny and and pretty humane and insightful into ordinary non-Parisian lives in France. The baker's wife has a great premise, which is that the baker's wife has run away and the baker's lost heart and can no longer bake bread. And what is the village if there's no one baking bread Mm -hmm. there? You know, it basically ceases to exist at that point, you know, if there isn't proper French bread every day. So it takes, you know, they take it upon themselves. They have to get the wife back for the baker. And uh, this is a, a fun and sweet, as I say, humane film starring the great Remu, who's also in the Marseille trilogy. Another film I almost picked has a very similar story. It's also by a director of that time who's a little less known over here, Julien de Vivier. And it's a Hitchcockian thriller called Panique. And the fact mm-hmm. that both of them kind of have that same you know, story in terms of release, there's something that we should have been seeing all along, and we just got to see this year. You know, it tells you there's still a lot out there to be discovered. Um, but thanks to Criterion for giving us both of those this year, at least. That was my number six. And what's what's number five from you, Bruce?
2: Well, my next film is often described as a film noir, but I really don't think it's a noir at all. My time is running out.
0: Every second brings me closer to death. They're hunting for me everywhere, but they don't know how close I am. Right here, trapped by the big clock.
2: It's the big clock from 1948, and I think it's one of the best thrillers from the 1940s that you'll ever see. Ray Milan plays George Stroud, who's a true crime writer and investigator for Crimeways, a tabloid magazine. And Charles Lawton is his deliciously amoral Earl Janeth. The CEO of a giant publishing conglomerate that publishes this magazine. Lawton's character won't let Milan take a vacation for years, and it's so bad that Milan and screen bride Maureen O'Sullivan never even got to take a honeymoon. Milan's vacation gets canceled again, and O'Sullivan leaves for a trip without him. So Milan goes out for a drink with Jana's ex wife, and they have a funny but innocent evening together. As he leaves her apartment, Lawton arrives and sees Milan in the distance, but only gets a glimpse of him. Lawton later loses his temper and kills his ex wife. So, to cover his crime, Lawton has his entire magazine staff looking for a fictitious guy who he saw leaving the apartment. And Milan soon realizes that the murderer he's looking for is himself. He doesn't have the usual noir characters like the femme fatale, there's no police. corruption in it, and there's no underworld, so I really don't think it fits into that genre. But it is a great thriller. And if anything, the movie is really critical of runaway capitalism because the the novel was written in the 30s. And the the signature big clock is in the middle of the skyscraper that houses Janeth publications, and everybody there is not allowed to waste time even the elevator operators aren't allowed to talk with the passengers because it slows down the elevators. After making a Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939, Lawton – I would say that was probably the pinnacle of his career, at least the early part of his career. And he pretty much coasted for about the next decade, just taking whatever roles he could just to make money. But this one, he is really, really good Another interesting thing about this film is it has Colonel Potter in it, I mean Harry Morgan, who was not who was not the nice commander of the MASH TV series we're used to, but a very creepy henchman. And Morgan never even says a word in this film, but he's a very menacing guy. Now this one, this disc from Arrow has a lot of extras on it. And you told me earlier that you really don't. You're not really into the extras, but I like the extras if they can provide a lot of context on the film or on the performers, or they can give me a lot of the history of the film. So this one has the first um, directory on it is called "Turning Back the C- Clock," which is an appreciation of the film by a filmmaker named Adrian Wooden. "A Difficult Actor" is about Charles Lawton, and it's by his biographer. Simon Callow. There's also a Lux radio theater hour-long broadcast of the same story that stars Milan. I don't really get into the radio broadcasts because I've already seen the film and just listening to the audio isn't, doesn't do much for me. Um, there's an audio commentary by Adrian Martin. We get a huge stills gallery and poster gallery. I mean, we're talking hundreds of images from the film and the trailer. And there's also a, an interesting booklet with information on the film. Um, the film looks and sounds pretty good, but I don't think it was taken from the original negative but it looks much better than the DVD so if you like hard-pounding suspense, I definitely recommend it
1: well my next one is also uh, a noir, this one is pretty definitely noir Jack
2: Marlowe, lover of beauty and
0: women tossed by violent emotions like a straw in a hurricane Carol, as loyal in love as relentless in hate as fate itself Scott Henderson, Accused of murder, and his only alibi—a mirage, a phantom lady.
1: It's actually, I think, a noir without a noir star. Uh, if it's if there's a star to Phantom Lady, it's director Robert Siodmak. Um, this is this is a film that's just a visual treat. There's so much shadowy stuff going on and the copy of it is is so beautiful. Bruce you pointed out that uh, in Phantom Lady there is you can actually see a string between two characters that was there to keep them at an even distance so they were both in focus during a chase sequence. So that's a yes. kind of de- detail that uh you know no one saw in 1944. So that's that's a favorite f- film of mine and I'm uh, very happy to see it on, on Blu-ray, but there's a, it's actually been a really good year for Robert Siodmak. A bunch of his films have come out or, or are coming out this year. Criss Cross is out. That has Burt Lancaster in another noir. Spiral Staircase, which is a, a wonderful sort of, you know, bit of gothic nonsense in an old dark house, but a lot of fun. And then early next year, the camp classic uh, Cobra Woman is coming from Kino. But a lot of studios putting Siodmak out, and I'm happy to see it because he is just one of those termite artists, you know, as Manny Farber said, who was making great films with relatively little money, but uh, lots of ingenuity at that time.
2: Yeah, I I really love this disc, too. Um, it was The original story was written by Cornell Woolrich, who ended up writing the original story for Hitchcock's Rear Window. He wrote a lot of uh, mystery and detective novels in the 30s that were adapted into films. And another thing I loved about this film was it kind of has a structure like Psycho because Alan Curtis appears to be the star of the film – but then after the crime happens, he's wrongly convicted and locked up, and he can't do anything the rest of the film. And so we need Ella Raines and Franchotte Tone to actually take over the storyline and figure out what happened.
1: So Phantom Lady, a uh, great little noir that you may never have heard of. Check it out.
2: Number three. What's, what's your number three? My number three is not a disc, but it's a box set. In the 1910s, there were at least a dozen female directors in Hollywood. But as the studios consolidated into just a few, they squeezed out most of the women directors. But in 1950, Ida Lupino became the only female director in Hollywood. She'd actually been a promising actress at Warner Brothers and was in some great hits like High Sierra, They Drive By Night, and The Seawolf. But when her contract was up with the studio, she decided to strike out on her own with her husband and form a company called The Filmmakers that was independent. She wanted to develop films on subjects that the major studios wouldn't touch, films that were about ordinary people.
1: On a gas? Yeah, hop in.
2: Wait not that long? Yeah. Smoke? No. Face front. And keep driving. So, Kino Lorber has released the Ida Lupino collection this year featuring four of her films. She not only directed these films, but she co-produced and mostly co-wrote them. All of them are fascinating, and they're quite different from her Warner's films. In addition to the disc, that we get a booklet on Ida Lupino. The first one is her first directorial effort called Not Wanted from 1949. It's definitely a B film. It just has a few sets, and it's shot a lot on the streets of Los Angeles. Elmer Clifton, who had worked with D.W. Griffith at Biograph, started out as the director, but he had a heart attack and was not able to continue directing the film. So Lupino stepped in, and I think she made this film much more visually interesting than Clifton could have done. The story is also remarkable because it deals with pregnancy and unwed motherhood in the 1940s. The only other film that I can think of that tackled this subject before was MGM's Blossoms in the Dust with Greer Garson. This film was probably the first American film to actually show a baby bump on a pregnant woman. Hmm. There's some really imaginative shots that show Sally Forrest, who's our lead actress, swooning over a piano player and how she's really charmed by his music. So while the budget is low, the storytelling, I feel, is excellent. Another interesting thing about this film is in 1951, two years later, scenes from this film were compiled into a sex hygiene film called (laughs) Long Rut. And it's really dated today because it makes it seem like Sally is solely responsible for becoming pregnant. After her short story, we're treated to animated scenes of conception, a baby developing, and even menstruation. Now, there's a subject that hasn't been touched in a Nitrateville podcast before, I'm (laughs) sure. Finally, we're treated to scenes of a live birth and then a live cesarean birth. So make sure that you're not eating a sandwich while watching this short. Her best film as a director is probably The Hitchhiker from 1953. In it's build, is the only film noir that was directed by a woman. It's a tense thriller that many would not expect to be directed by a woman. There isn't even a single female character in the film except for a minor part of a little Mexican girl that's briefly in harm's way. Lupino deftly handles the tense action scenes as well as the scenes of the Mexican police hunting down a killer. The film was made at Lone Pine in California, like many accent features, doesn't have many interior shots. It's based on the real case of Billy Cook. The film features Frank Lovejoy and Edmund O'Brien as two married buddies who are heading into the Mexican desert for a fishing trip. They make the mistake of picking up a hitchhiker who is a serial killer, played by William Talman. Through the rest of the film, Talman terrorizes and humiliates them and threatens to kill everyone that they meet unless the two can drive him to the coast so he can catch a boat and escape the Mexican police. The two victims can't really escape because if one guy gets away, they know the other one is doomed. And Talman's taunting really gets to O'Brien's character, and that adds to another layer of tension in the film. This restoration by the Library of Congress looks and sounds great. There is an excellent and informative commentary track by Imogene Sarah Smith that I recommend you listen to. One of the interesting things she brings up is that the MPPA, which was the production code people, forbid movies based on true crimes. But Lupino was able to get away with this one somehow. And I saw this film in a theater earlier in this year, and I was stunned that I hadn't heard of it before, and it's so good. Also, this film doesn't stereotype Mexican characters in any way, as Lupino apparently had strong views about racial stereotypes in films. Because the next one is another story that the the studios would not touch at all called The Bigamist from 1953. And it stars Edmund O'Brien as a guy who tries to please everybody and ends up being married to two different women at one time. An interesting thing about this is if you or I met a bigamist, we'd probably think that they were probably not a very good person. But in this film, it makes the traveling salesman O'Brien into a really sympathetic character. He's really almost relieved when everything comes crashing down on him. (laughs) The final film is probably the most traditional one in the set. And it was restored by the BFI. It's called Never Fear from 1949. We have the same leads from the earlier film Not Wanted. But this time uh, Sally Forrest is playing the female member of an up-and-coming dance team. And she gets sick and is diagnosed with polio. And she wallows in self-pity and pushes everyone away from her. This subject was important to Lupino because she had been stricken with polio as a teenager. That was my pick for number three.
1: One of the questions that often comes up at Nitroville is, if somebody's new to silent films, what's what's the first silent film they should see? And people usually suggest comedy. I mean, that's an easy an easy way into silent film. Uh, but one of the films that I've always suggested, just because it's so, uh, it's something you're so instantly empathetic to it. It's so compelling. Uh, it's a very late silent, directed by Paul Denny, starring Conrad Veidt, called The Man Who Laughs. And it's it's kind of a, uh, you might say, an emo drama. Uh, Vite plays a character who's physically uh, mutilated as a boy. He has a giant smile carved into his face uh, that may remind you of another character of recent times. For Universal, this film was kind of a continuation of something like uh, Lon Chaney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But I think it's a more effective film it's uh it's a more effective drama because Veit's performance and this character are so sympathetic. Uh there's something similar to the elephant man, David Lynch's film. I mean, I think he was clearly influenced by it, uh, in that the character is a monster to society, but he wants us to know that he's he's a man and he has real feelings. And that's that's just all very compellingly done. Um, It's a film I've seen many times over the years. It's a little hard doing a list like this because things come out and you're like, oh, another version of The General. I don't really need that. Or, you know, The Kid Brother or some of these things. But in fact... You know it's great that these films keep coming out in better and better editions for people who aren't familiar with them yet and the new edition of the Man who Lasts from Flickr Alley looks great um has a very compelling score on it I think there's two scores actually um but I've watched it once so it has it has one score that I've heard so far anyway uh it's it's really. It's really a powerful film that shows the power of silent film to really sweep you away into a uh, historical setting and and a sort of goth romantic story. So my top pick of the year is that new version of The Man Who Laughs.
2: And it really shows off how in 1928, 1929, right when sound came in, silent film had really reached the apex of its artistic and storytelling focus. It's just a a really good film from Universal.
0: I'm sorry to intrude on this tender scene. I, uh, I knew it before you did, loved it before you did. I was as lucky as you.
2: My number one pick is a film you may have already seen before, and I've always been a Hitchcock fan, but you've never seen this film like it is on the Criterion disc that came out this year. It's Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious from 1946, and it's as suspenseful as Hitchcock can get, but it's also one of his most romantic films. Ingrid Bergman plays an, a daughter of a Nazi who's recruited by the U.S. government, a, a Agent Cary Grant to spy on the Nazis who have fled to South America after World War II. She not only spies on them, but marries the charming but villainous Claude Rains. Grant's character is in love with her, but is angry she gave herself up. This disc is a gold mine for viewers who love Alfred Hitchcock. Besides the restored movie, we get two commentary tracks, once by movie historian Rudy Boehmer, who just recently passed away, and another one by Alfred Hitchcock scholar Marion King. There's a 50-minute documentary for French television that was co-produced by TCM called Once Upon a Time Notorious. There's a 20-minute segment on the film's visual style by cinematographer John Bailey. There's a scene analysis of the film's editing by film theorist David Bordwell. I'm sure anyone, if it's read about film theory, has, has read one of his uh, critiques, and Hitchcock biographer Donald Spato talks about the film in a short feature. There's also newsreel footage of Ingrid Bergman and Hitchcock from 1948, and then if you are an old-time radio fan, there's the Lux Radio version of the film with Bergman and Joseph Cotton. There's four trailers, and of course, there's a booklet with an essay on the film. So that's about eight hours of content just for this one film. It's like taking a course in the film. One of the interesting highlights of this film for me was the extra-long kiss between Bergman and Grant in the film. The time, the production code, was in effect, and kisses longer than two and a half seconds were forbidden. But Hitchcock and writer Ben Hecht cleverly got around this because Grant and Bergman are kissing and hugging each other. So they hug each other and kiss. Two and a half seconds, then they say a few words. They kiss again, talk, and then kiss, and so on. The camera moves around them because they can't let go of each other. They take a few steps, but they're holding on to each other and kiss again on and off. Cary Grant even answers the phone, but he can't let go of Ingrid, and he can't stop kissing her while he's talking on the phone. So this kiss ends up being over two minutes long. It's very romantic, and it gets around the production code. I don't think you can call yourself a cinephile if you haven't seen this film. I could rave about it for hours, but I'll finish with a quote from Hitchcock in the French documentary on the disc. He says that he doesn't make mysteries. He makes suspenseful movies where he shows the audience more than the characters know. And that knowledge is what creates suspense in the film.
1: Links for our top 10, so you can add them to your collection, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. And now we go to a few blocks from my house earlier this fall.
0: In fact, yeah. I've got my list of songs here. I, I do... Um, when we do the noir Fest. I do mu- music from a specific year. Like tonight we're doing two films from 1950. So I'm playing all music of 1950 for the pre-show. And I do that for them. I started doing that several years ago and they really liked the fact that I was setting the mood for the, the year the film was made. Yeah. And I do that with a lot of things. Last week, or the last several weeks, when we've done Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I did pre-show music from
1: 1969.
0: Huh. All those. So what was that? Because I, I came to it, but I don't remember. I don't uh, know well, let's see. I just happened to have the list right here. Because <laughs> we've been go. doing it all these <laughs> All these weeks. Uh, my Sharia Moore, Jean, you know, from sure. the prime of Miss Jean Brody. Everybody's Talking, the theme from Midnight Cowboy. Right. Uh, for Once in My Life, uh, My Way, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Raindrops Keep Falling Thank on My God. Head. Everybody who ever played piano or organ in a <laughs> bar had to learn that song. Uh, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, I've Got to Be Me, and Good Morning, sun. Uh, good morning Starshine.
1: That's Dennis Scott, house organist at Chicago's Music Box Theater, planning out what he's going to play as welcome music for that evening's Noir City Festival with Eddie Muller. Built just as sound was coming in, the atmospheric style Music Box today presents the full history of film, from new art house releases to 70mm revivals to silent films, usually accompanied by Scott on the organ. As part of its 90th anniversary celebrations, the Music Box installed a new vintage organ console, and Dennis Scott agreed to show it off for Nitrateville Radio and tell us about life as one of America's last working house theater organists.
0: Uh, Michael, this is my partner, Tom Day. Hey. He's the one who did all the wiring for this Oh, organ. really? Every bit of it. I heard that it was uh,
1: an epic production.
0: Just here in the theater, it was 1500 feet of wiring to get all the cabling because there are 10 speakers in that chamber, 14 speakers in that chamber so far. But it uh, that's soon to go up by four more channels, four more speakers. It's just to separate the sound, divide the sound so it's cleaner, it doesn't make it louder, it just makes it cleaner, right?
1: Yeah, there's some back there cuz I think when we went to Roma we heard yeah, the Dolby Atmos coming from the back. Well,
0: that's for the that's for the screen. Just okay,
1: so that's separate. Yeah,
0: yeah, the, these are just for the organ. Okay. Yeah, because the original see the theater opened in 1929 and it didn't have a pipe organ because they made the executive decision that they were going to be Sound film only by twenty nine, you know twenty seven. Well, the jazz singer, well, it might be just a fad. <laughs> it might not work. Yeah. By nineteen twenty eight, they said, okay, this is a thing. It's going to happen. But there were so many theaters that were ill equipped to go to sound, just like in the recent days of digital, going from from film to digital. Because typically it was about $80,000 per screen to change over the system. And a lot of smaller theaters couldn't afford that kind of hit. So they just, uh, some theaters went out of business, smaller theaters went out of business. Um, Well, yeah, there's that one just up the
1: street that's now the Mercury Theater and does live shows.
0: Well, that that was a Nickelodeon. They had silent film with piano. In fact, we had an old friend who belonged to a lot of the organ clubs so said, My mother played piano at that theater. Uh-huh. And uh, that was... Uh, but that
1: basically, cl- when the music box came in, it gave up the ghost at that point. Yeah,
0: it became a storefront. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, ironically, a lot of Nickelodeons were to begin with. They yeah. were storefronts that had been turned over turned into uh, Nickelodeons. Some of them were so simple, they had benches for seats, they had an out-of-tune-up bright piano in the front, and they had a projector in the back and a sheet of some kind in the front, and that was about the extent of it, you know, if didn't need anything else, until uh, you know, the first movie palaces sort of got their genesis here in Chicago with uh, the Central Park Theater right, on, uh, on the west side. Also, that was the first public building that was cooled by refrigeration. (laughs) You used to see pictures of the early movie palaces. and They had big, they had uh, canvas signs that were, canvas banners that were under the market, cooled by refrigeration with the icicles hanging off the left. Right.
1: Well, you see that in the ads. That's bigger than the movie title.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, here in Chicago we talk about the, cooling centers that they have now whenever we have a heat wave yeah. we didn't have cooling centers before, we had Balaban Cats <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, there's a legend, I don't know you probably heard this too, that at one time in Chicago if everyone decided to go to the movies at the same time everyone could be seated huh. it's, it's something that I've heard for years because there were huge, huge movie palaces all over the city. You know, 40 years ago, the Music Box was not known as a movie a palace. It was just a little quiet neighborhood movie theater. And now this is Chicago's movie palace because all the others have been torn down. So Music Box is the, the survivor. Yeah. And we sort of stressed that you know, we celebrate our 90th because so many theaters have closed. So many big theaters. I I don't know how long you've been in Chicago, or you've in grew about up thirty there. years now. Yeah, No. You know. Do uh, you remember the Granada? Um, yeah, just before it was torn down. Yeah, gorgeous theater. Absolutely, just heartbreakingly gorgeous theater. It was torn down, and now there's a heartbreakingly ugly building in its yeah. place. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, the Uptown, which is, you know, throws a big restored. Yeah. That was a 45-seat, 4,500-seat house. And just along Clark Street, uh, around Clark University, there's the Century. the Century, which was a very large theater. I don't recall the exact number of seats. And then across the street to the south, where Lins Crafters is now, was the Parkway Theater, which was about 900 seats, I think. And then a block farther south was the huge Covent Garden Theater, which was torn down in the 50s. Part of the building is still there. In fact, you can drive through what was the lobby to get to the parking <laughs> lot behind it. And in that two block area, more than 6,000 seats. Yeah. I figured it out one time I had the, the book with all the, the listings of the theaters and their seating capacity. More than 6,000 seats just along one street and a two-block stretch and it was like that all over the city so uh, but we like to call ourselves the survivors because we are the theaters run almost continuously since 1929
1: yeah yeah so let's talk um the 90th anniversary it was the neighborhood house for into the 70s, I think I read that it, it was an Arabic language theater at one
0: point. I think they tried almost every yeah. foreign language in here, and um, um, some sort of a Bollywood house for a short yeah. time.
1: Yeah. And,
0: uh, then they were doing uh, family films in the mornings and porn at night. And that didn't <laughs> last too long. The neighborhood said <laughs> that. Yeah. So, uh, they uh, in 1983, um, Bob Cheney and Chris Carlo took over the, the operation business, and they uh, they did a lot of work to uh, dress up the theater. It had been it, it was pretty tired by then. I think it had all been painted uh, pepto-bismol paint or something <laughs> like that. So they. They came up with the cohort scheme, and that's uh, basically what what we still have now. Um, sometime in the very, very near future, uh, auditorium is going to be completely uh, redone. We're taking a section of a time um, because it's uh, you know it's an operating movie theater, and we have to budget it. and thank- Thankfully, we we're doing very well. I've mean, had so many sellout shows. We have wonderful bookers who book the most ingenious things. Yeah. And,
1: uh, well, when I we moved here so, here, so it was it was kind of, I, mean, I think, a bit like what the parkway used to do. Was the, you have the double bill of two movies that kind of went together, you know. War of the Worlds and When Worlds Collide or <laughs> Jezebel and Dark Victory exactly, or something yeah. like that. And,
0: and it's funny because we just did Dark Victory last week. We're doing a Betty, Betty Davis uh retrospective but we're only doing doing that now on Saturday and Sunday mornings right. for the 11.30 shows. And uh, we've got starting this week or next week, we're doing Dora State, three, oh. three Dora State. But yeah, they, they started with that policy and that didn't last very long. And I think the whole video killed that because you could see the old movies so easily. It, it did. So it was another era when they were trying to do something, and then TV went out again. You know. I think that's going. By the way, because everybody has all the all the most fantastic home theaters now, but people have begun to realize that it's not nearly as fun. It's nice when you can watch watch it in your jammies and you know, yeah. in your easy chair. But when people come to the theater. And they see a film with other people and hear the reactions of the other people. There's nothing like that. I mean, uh, in the 50s, all, all these theaters started going dark because people were watching television. It was such a novelty. If you look back now at the TVs in the 50s, you are know, right. watching something How like could that. you watch it now? I know, a black and white uh, CRT, you know. with it's uh, About eight inches across. Yeah. And when you think of it in today's terms, not really a very good picture. Yeah. I grew up with that, I was born in the, yeah. in the late 40s. But, but it was a big novelty then because there had never been anything like that. People wanted to watch a movie, they had to go to the theater. Yeah. So there was a lot they took, uh, took for granted. And I think people start coming to the theaters and say, oh wow, this is a nice experience, and seeing it with other people. Roger Ebert used to write about this theater specifically, because he thought this was the perfect size theater. He thought the movie palaces, the big 2,500 seat palaces, were too big. But this was just the right size to have an audience and to see a movie on the big screen.
1: It's surprising how small the screen in like Radio City, or I'm sure the Uptown, was relative to the theater really was, you're kind of half a block away watching something that was happening way over there. And
0: even with the big screen and when they first started out in the 1920s they had almost like elaborate stage sets that went all the way across the stage because they had stage shows as well but the screen was only maybe maybe 15 or 20 feet wide the square picture, it wasn't it wasn't much.
1: Yeah, they got bigger in the fifties, which is another thing the music box does is the seventy millimeter festival. Right, sort of captures that era when when screens got bigger in response to TV.
0: Right. Now we we do those some sometimes we do the seventies on our regular screen, which is a good size screen. But have you been here when yeah, we've done well, we done the set of the special? Well, the first time we did that was with the Hateful Eight. And they had they rented a screen and it went from that edge of that organ chamber all the way across that edge of that organ chamber. <laughs> it's forty feet wide. And in a large movie palace that wouldn't be a particularly large screen. Uh, but here, that's a that's a very large screen. Well it was sort of unwieldy. Yeah. I turned oddly enough, it turned the theater into something. That, looked like a black box, <laughs> like the smaller videos. And the next time we did it, we opened The Hateful Eight. That was kind of a culture shock because the day before... There was on, We opened on Christmas Day with that film. The day before, we had families, multiple generations of families here for our Christmas sing-along. It was uh, Christmas Eve. We did two shows that day at noon and 3.15. And the house was full of families with their uh, blinky antlers and their ugly Christmas sweaters and their sleigh bell sticks that they could ring when it started to snow and white Christmas and their little silver bells that they could ring for Clarence when he got his wings you know, and all those things. And just, you know, heartwarming. It's so much fun to play for those things uh, with our singular And then 315 show was out and after everybody left the theater, they came in and started building the scaffold. On Christmas Eve? On Christmas Eve. And also, that's the same day they decided to put in our new 7.1 sound system. So they're doing all of this. And they worked all night, uh-huh. Christmas Eve. Well, I mean, we have, really have a dedicated staff. They worked all night to put this screen together. And at noon, on Christmas Day, we opened with The Hateful Eight and we had a full house for that. We were in fact we were the busiest theater in the country with that film because we were doing it in the And it was such a culture shock, you know, because was 18 to 34 males pissed off ready for a good, you know, dose of violence and it it was so much different than what you know and and the uh, you know the day before you know Rosemary Clooney's singing Love You Didn't Do Right by me and they're making fun of all the uh, um, the, the terrible choreography but uh, yeah I took
1: my kids I don't know if it was that year but one year I took them to white christmas because i wanted them to know what christmas was like when i was a kid and i thought what sums it up better than yeah. you know bing and danny and
0: you know everything and, and rosemary and vera and, and don't forget mary wicks yeah my favorite yeah well, rosemary is my favorite she's my favorite singer but, uh, yeah it's a it's a really wonderful experience here because we we have so many different kinds of um, and <laughs> I, I have to laugh about some of the uh, things that, that go on here. Because are, are you familiar with Dan Savage? Sure. And his Humpfest. Yeah. We do that. I've not been to that, but it's actually it actually it's you, you would think uh, you know years ago you would have thought well they're are going to be old men in trench coats you yeah. know but it's people of all ages really. People you wouldn't expect to see at something like this at an amateur porn fest, but it again it fills the house. Yeah. You know when it's here, and then one year we did that, and it was either the week before or the week after we were playing Silence, Martin Scorsese film about the oh Spanish missionaries not Silence Silence yeah. yeah yeah the Spanish missionaries in Japan. And um, Cardinal Souvage came to do a Q and A. I thought, Oh God, if he'd only known what was on screen about three days before, (laughs) he would he would be apoplectic. (laughs) But that's the beauty of the music box. I mean, it all happens here. Yeah.
1: well, let's talk about uh, silence and, and organ accompaniment. I mean, you play for the the silence. You've got uh, For Heaven's Sake coming up. You had yeah. that really interesting thing from the Dutch Eye Film Museum or Eye Institute. I forget what it's
0: called. Yeah, they, uh, the, well, they, uh, the documentary about uh, Chicago. Uh, yeah, it was uh, German film, all with German subtitles. So uh, uh, our programmer, Mikhail Westfall read all the uh, subtitles. Okay. Um, yeah, we had a... a short documentary about Halstead Street from that same period of time from the south end of it that was farmland until the the ends you know the north side and uh, that was our our short and then we did the did the feature film of Chicago in 1931 and uh, it's remarkable what a gritty yeah, <laughs> gritty, dirty city it was then. And even when I made my first trips to Chicago as a kid, I remember all the buildings being covered with coal soot. Yeah, and being the streets were were dirty. And now it's, it's so clean by yeah. comparison. <laughs> think we sort of take it for granted that it's so much cleaner than it used
1: to be. right you have to watch the Blues Brothers to see what Chicago was like
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that was when they were starting to clean up the city that right. was a, but, it, but it was still there was part of that grit that was left over from the, from the coal fired days <laughs> yeah well so you you
1: play for the silence that play here but you also play between shows I so do so of the
0: time yeah I uh, I every week I play uh generally although the schedules can change every week now because of all the different things we're doing but generally i play two intermissions on friday night two intermissions on saturday night and then two on that sunday afternoon because the sunday the matinees tend to be busier than the shows because everyone has to be back in the office on monday so they yeah. don't go to the late shows so um I, I play those and sometimes depending on the movie I'll play music that's I think is appropriate to that film other times it's just playing whatever comes to my mind <laughs> or requests uh, Sunday afternoons when it's not quite as busy as it is on on Friday and Saturday night I'll ask people for requests and I people ask for really new stuff which doesn't work all that well on right? right. um, theater but they're asking it's a savvy audience they're asking for really, some really good songs that uh, oh that's good I haven't thought of that in a while I'll you know, play something for or it's something that I've never played, but I've said I should learn that song. And I said, well, if you bear with me, I'm just going to try it here and see if it works. <laughs> you just kind of doodle it out? And yeah, see if so it usually works. Honest. Sometimes it doesn't. But I, I give them fair warning in advance. I said, right. I've, I've never played this song. And, and sometimes a song that I've never played, just because I simply have never sat down to play it, but I play mostly by ear. You know. So, they just, it just falls under my hands fairly easily, so I thought, I better keep doing that one. <laughs> so, for uh,
1: the silence, I mean, you don't have, you don't have, like, a fake book with, like, chase music, and now I'll play the chase music, you just kind of do it?
0: No, I always tell people the music, the film on the screen is my sheet music, and I follow that. And another question people ask me is, do you watch the screen while you're playing the silent music? Of course, I watch the screen. I'm following what's up there. Oh well, you don't have this written out in advance. I no. Yeah. Sometimes I never see a film until like that's happened a few times. We got a film in late um, the night before it's supposed to be screened, and I'll play it cold. It's only happened a few times. Okay. And sometimes they'll get one. In there's no screener for and there's no time to watch and I said, "Can hey, I'll come in early that morning, I'll say, can you run part of the first reel and part of the last reel? So I can see the very beginning of the film and the very end of the film. I said, if I can get a handle on those, the rest of it sort of takes care of yeah. itself. You know, where you need to,
1: to start and where you need to wind up by the end. Yeah. yeah.
0: You have to keep the uh, Keep your eye on the screen, but uh, and we sort of do that here because uh, we'll have um, you know the Chicago Film Society you now books are silent films. Right. Kyle and, and Rebecca, um, I think Kyle does most of it. But, uh, and they they do a wide variety of films, but sometimes the feature film is less than an hour long, so. Almost always, they'll add a, a cartoon or a short of some kind because they are, they're all film collectors and they pull yeah. us out of their files. <laughs> so sometimes the short might be 16 millimeter. We have a wonderful 16 millimeter projector there. Uh, in fact, we can project practically anything <laughs> from 70 to standard 35, and then we can do. 35 in variable speed uh, for silence, right. and if they have time, they will preview the silent, try to figure out how many frames would look most natural. In fact, I think I heard one of your podcasts where somebody was talking about somebody from Kino was talking about presenting a film at 18 oh, frames yeah. a yeah. second, and then they they redid it later. Yeah, Blood Sand. it was 22 frames exactly something. Exactly.
1: So that. Yeah, so they had
0: uh, Sauer, Rodney Sauer just the music. Yeah, Rodney's been here Yeah. Uh, when, we did, no, actually, um, when we did Hitchcock Night. Okay, yeah. No, I came for that and I uh, actually had them over to my house for a barbecue. Oh, nice, <laughs>
1: before nice. Before we came over yeah. here.
0: So. Yeah. yeah, it was fascinating yeah. to watch them work.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I really yeah. like them. It's too bad they haven't been back. <laughs> lately, but yeah, we came to see them do the lodger. So. Right. Oh, and there in the background goes the sound of the uh, curtain rising. The curtain
0: rising. Oh, they got rid of the squeak. <laughs> Sometimes they were good. E- 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 and I would think of Mrs. Mears from Thoroughly Modern Milling. I'd look at the screen and say, shoe show, shoe show. <laughs> yeah, they were here. We did the Hitchcock 9. And they did I think three films, we did four films yeah, that weekend else? and I did five films and I did something like five films in three days or yeah. something like that. It was a busy week, Yeah, but, but a lot of fun because you sort of, when it's that intense you really immerse yourself into it and I wish we'd had this organ. So how'd you learn to play an organ like this? I, uh, I took lessons. I didn't start nearly soon enough. <laughs> I started when I was about 14. I took lessons from a um, music teacher in, in, the, in the back of a music store and took lessons for about two and a half years. My dad wouldn't pay for my lessons, so his oldest sister, uh, my Aunt Clara, bless her, <laughs> enough, wherever <laughs> she is paid for my lessons until she died and that was the end of it so everything else is pretty much self-taught okay. so I wish I'd had uh, you know, all the years of training that people like uh, Robert Israel and Carl Bennett had, you know, cause I, I, I admire what they do but I I'm not an academic Yeah. so uh, everything that I do is pretty much improvised and I will, my mentor was John Murray. I don't know if I know the John. name, yeah. Um, he recorded a lot of things for David Shepard, right, for Black Hawk, when he was still Blackhawk. And he, uh, I never formally studied from him, but he was my dearest friend for oh, nearly 40 years until he died. And I always watched, I went to watch him play silent films in theaters all over the country back in the 70s and 80s. In fact, I was with him uh, when he was 92, and he played a couple of silent films for the Atlanta Film Society. Um, And David Shepard happened to be there. Uh, The last films, he did two performances of Seventh Heaven, got standing ovations for both of them. Did those on an electron, but John would rarely use published music in a silent film, unless it was a comedy, and then he would add a little paraphrase of a song just for comic effect. But in drama, he would rarely use published music unless it was classical music that he would paraphrase. But uh, he did, when he was recording for Black Hawk, he did his own themes for the comedies because he was afraid of copyright infringements yeah. and things like that. So everything was... Um, he wrote out lead sheets for all of these themes. And that's basically what I'll do. I'll have a theme in mind for a character and then I'll do variations on that theme, um, but mostly it's it's improvised. I'm trying to follow the action on screen as it happens.
1: Yeah, which really makes it live, <coughs> live performance. It's the live theater. You're, yeah, you're responding to the film, you're responding to the audience, responding to you, all of that going on.
0: Right, and it's it's wonderful when I'm doing a drama. And it gets to a very serious. And I'll bring the bring the organ down to just something very, very, very quiet like. Uh... Mm-hmm. And sometimes it will just get so quiet. It's just... for a few seconds there won't be anything if somebody's dying yeah I'll just let them die in peace you know (laughs) (laughs) and there there might be a few hundred people in the back of me and I don't hear a sound right they'll just and I think people people breathe with music yeah that's why it's important to phrase correctly because the audience is breathing with the music so if you don't phrase People are going to suffocate out there, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and when we do that in silent film, when it gets very quiet, it gets very quiet out here. And I thought, ooh, I've got it. You know, that's, that's that's when that that's the sweet spot of playing silent films. So. Sometimes you'll just scare hell out of people by playing some big big loud thing, but um, yeah, you know, no, that's the to be Yeah
1: just you sweep people away with it because yeah. that's, that's something that you don't get in movies much anymore yeah. it's just you know, that combination of the music and the visuals
0: and you've probably heard this from from Ben or other people who play Ben Modell or other people who play live the biggest compliment you can get is if people say oh my god I forgot to listen to what you were playing <laughs> right yeah because the, that's why uh, there's so many concert theater artists now who are going out playing silent films and they're wonderful musicians but they're not really film people because they tend to overplay scenes and if when I'm just playing a note or two down here you know, it would drive them crazy because well oh, come on play something <laughs> and, and when I would listen to some of them play I, I said I'm going crazy out in the audience. I said, come on, throttle it back a little bit, would you? And it's kind of frustrating to watch and listen of these guys do this. But uh, I love playing for silent films because I can just sort of disappear up here. And that's, what, that's my intention, to disappear, because I'm just taking the emotions that are on screen and kind of lobbing them out into the... Audience with a little help, you know. That's that's the the whole idea to me, to accompany silent film, uh, because it's not about me. Like when I do the Buster Keaton films, it's, people say, "Oh, I said, "No, I said Buster was wonderful. I right. just I just helped, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just helping them move along." Yeah. In fact, uh, every year I, I this will be I think my thirteenth year playing for the International Buster Keaton Convention. Oh, in Muskegon. Have you ever been to that?
1: I haven't been to it. I interviewed uh, a woman from it last year.
0: Patty Tobias. Yes. Yeah. She's the founder of the uh, Dame Finos. Uh, Wonder. She's wonderful, and uh, she's really the heart and soul of that organization. And she uh, she studied Buster and discovered that he was from Muskegon, or actually from Bluffton, which is a little community between Muskegon and Lake Michigan. And, uh, she decided to put on these conventions every year around the time of Buster's birthday, which is October 4th. And this is our 25th anniversary. So, uh, should be a big convention this year.
1: Yeah. I'm able to try and go to this here.
0: Oh, you should. <laughs> you should wait a few days I haven't made my hotel reservation <laughs> I hope they're not full yet
1: well let's talk about the organ all right. uh, there's a
0: new console but yeah tell us all about it, organs here at the music box. It, it's a uh, well the in 1983 they started out with a, a real home model organ it was a gold Branson it sat right out in the middle of because it didn't take that much room and it wasn't very tall, so they put it in the, in the, right in the center. And then a few years later, well maybe a few months later, they got a three-manual Allen Organ. And Bob Cheney had been an Allen Organ dealer in California, so he bought it from one of his former cohorts, uh, the, okay. the, the fellow who was Allen organ dealer in Oakland, who was a fr- longtime friend. So they bought this custom Allen and put it in here. And it lasted until about 2009. And it was dying. It, it, it was a custom installation, never quite worked right. It, it always had some problems. And I had, I started here in 92, and played here until 98. I had a full time day job out in the suburbs and it just got to be too much uh, so oddly enough I was working as a graphic artist for a chain of movie theaters that had a pipe organ in one of their theaters actually when I started they had three pipe organs anyway I finally came back here in 2009 Brian Andriotti who's our booker for most of our films um Sent me a letter saying, "Want you to come back uh, to play for the Noir Fest." Uh, That was, I think, the first Noir Fest. And uh, then play for the sing-alongs and so forth. Some of the sing-alongs and some of this and some of that. Oh, by the way, would you like to come back as house organ this time? Said yes, 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 and yes. (laughs) So, but one of the first things I did when I came back was play for the Noir Fest, and Harry Belafonte was here. And this organ was dying. It was just, just on its last legs, and it barely worked. And he's terrified it came off the screen when I was playing him off. He, he um, looked at me and said, Does that old thing still work? I said, Just barely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they got, uh, they got another Allen, the, the one that you probably have seen a lot, at the white sure. gold Yeah, Allen. That was the, the uh, next organ. And it was it served us very well, I've got to say. It just didn't have the variety of sounds that this one does. And I told people it ran the gamut of emotion from A to B. And we needed more sound effects and more, more fun sounds. And uh, so Tom and I started putting this organ together uh, We bought this console four years ago and we decided that we were going to rebuild it and put it in the theater. It had been painted bright red uh, with cheap gold paint around the trim and it looked like a circus wagon. And it was in pretty sad shape. So we spent all the time rebuilding it and then we uh, got the digital samples. This was originally a pipe organ console that was in the theater in Philadelphia, and it was built here in Chicago by Kimball on the South Side in 1929, okay. the same year, same year as the, theater. The, the theater opened. So I, I like to romanticize it and think, you know, if they had made different decisions here, executive decisions, this organ might have come to the music box instead of going to Philadelphia. Yeah. So. Uh, so it finally ended up here without the pipes. Uh, people think it's a pipe order because we're using digital samples, right. but it's, uh, there, there are no pipes up there at all. So, were there ever pipes here? No, that was the thing. They never, that's the irony because it, they never did silent films here. Right. At, after the theater opened in 29, they opened with the sound policy and they had a voice of the theater. Uh, in the theater and it was when it was designed because it's during that transitional period the organ the theater was designed during the silent film era or at the end of the silent film era but they were accustomed to designing theaters of this size with pipe organ chambers so the chambers are there but they never had anything in them until the 80s when they put the first Allen organ in and all the speakers went up in the pipe chambers so that's that's been the that's been what uh, what we've done since and the first Allen had I think 14 channels Uh, the Allen that was in here just before this organ had only 6 audio channels but uh and it, and it worked unless we were really really packed and with a noisy crowd and then the organ tended to disappear so this one is a, a little bit more forceful and uh, so what
1: are some of the things that you're excited that you got for putting this new organ in in terms of the noises you
0: can make well we can uh, I, I don't have it set up uh, there are a couple of monitors I put up here when we want to change the uh, memory levels of these pistons but for uh, our Christmas uh, we have we have the uh, tune sleigh bells so uh, you know I can do something like a so, I can do things like that. And then, for uh, we've got all the sound effects uh, during one of our silent films, I had two. We've got two Chinese gongs, and I had one on that side and one on this side. And so, uh, for uh, when we did the adventures of Prince Ahmed, I uh, <laughs> and these are programmable, so I can change all these if I want to. Uh, this one, there's uh, bell tree over here on house right. There's another bell tree here on house left, which is different. Yeah. Basically, that one goes up, and this one goes down birds drain whistle and then we have a acne horned drain crash things like that cymbal uh, roll cymbal crash and these can all be changed I can, uh, I can change all these sounds and then I can can uh, Play something with a marimba and piano going. Or I can uh, play a little George string because it does have a piano stop.
1: There. That sounds
0: yeah, so I've got it. I'll do those tonight with it, Eddie Muller and it varies from show to show, sure. and sometimes from audience to audience because some audience want audiences want to hear things that more, are more up tempo, and some people just like to be lulled, you know, by yeah. things like this. <laughs> so I, I've developed this ability to listen to the audience behind me to see, see what they're. What they might be thinking. I'm usually pretty good at guessing what their mood is. Yeah. Just by the audience noise.
1: Give us a little taste of one of those.
0: Oh, let's see. Um, my foolish heart.
1: Dennis Scott's next silent film presentation at the Music Box Theater in Chicago will be the Chicago Film Society's showing of the 1924 Peter Pan on December 9th. And he'll be back for the annual holiday screenings of White Christmas and It's a Wonderful Life with a sing-along and more, running December 12th through Christmas Eve. Thanks to my guests, Bruce Calvert and Dennis Scott. And thanks to the Music Box Theater just for being. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.